Welcome to the Redemptive Edge podcast. I'm Praxis co-founder and CEO, Dave Blanchard, and I'm here with partner for theology and culture, Andy Crouch. The last time we were with you on this podcast was the beginning of COVID-19. We were processing what we were facing together, how entrepreneurs and builders should respond, and particularly what our call was as Christians in that moment. Today, we address you over a year later. It's May 19th. We're here in New York City, and this is actually the first official day of everything opening back up. We're able to go to restaurants. Broadway is talking about opening in the fall, and there's a certain thing in the air that feels absolutely wonderful. At the same time, we're not in the same world we were in. This, as we wrote back last March, is not just a return to normal, but we have to really think carefully and compassionately about where we are today and what should we do as redemptive actors in the world. As you know, on this podcast, we talk about what redemptive is, being focused on creative restoration through sacrifice, this idea that as Christians, we need to be creating as made in the image of God, that we need to be restoring, helping make all things new. And as part of that, it almost always requires some sacrificial moves, some way to love others and leave something on the table uh, for ourselves so that others can uh, be, be growing and have new opportunities. And that's just such a key thing for this very moment, I think. And Andy, I you have uh, guided our team on this. You've guided our community on this, uh, just how to think about where we are at this moment. And I want to ask you a question, I guess, to kick us off here. When we look back at this time in history, how do you think we're going to see it? Hmm. Thanks, Dave. Um, well, I don't know about when we look back because we will remember, uh, at least I think we'll remember <laughs> what it felt like. Uh, so it's a, uh, getting rid of masks is like getting rid of braces. Uh, and I definitely remember what it felt like to have braces. And I remember the day when I got my braces off, like that's a big deal for yeah. a kid. We'll remember that because we lived through it, but our great grandchildren who will look back without having experienced it themselves, actually the evidence of history is overwhelmingly the pandemic will, will not be what they think about when they think about this time in history, hmm. because hmm. the truth is w with the possible exception of the black death in Europe, which was a, an exceptionally uh, virulent plague that took out, took out maybe 40% of the population of Europe. Uh, we do learn about that in school, <laughs> but hmm. I guarantee, I can pretty much guarantee you the first time you ever heard of the Spanish flu was March of last year, March of 2020. Even though the Spanish flu was a huge deal, it killed uh, many more people proportionally, if I'm not mistaken, than, than COVID has done uh, because it affected all age groups and it was, you know, it was a terrible thing. But we don't talk about it when, when we talk about the 1910s and 1920s. Uh, we talk about the Great War. We talk about the Roaring Twenties. We talk about then the Great Depression and, of course, the rise of, uh, in particular, National Socialism in Germany. All those things are way bigger stories for us. We talk about the Harlem Renaissance, right? The incredible cultural flowering um, that happened in that time. Um, pandemics really don't stick in historical memory. And I think it's because they are purely natural events that, um, that obviously create terrible loss and suffering as we have all lived through. And some of us have lived through it in incredible, uh, painful ways this year. Yeah. But nature by itself is just not as consequential 
for the story of the world as culture, as the human story, as human choices, beliefs, intentions, actions, decisions. Um, and, and nature can cause suffering, but the human story, the Christian way of thinking about this is that the human story is a story of sin, although also a story of grace and redemption. And it's really that story of sin and redemption that's the like engine of the human story. So as much as the past year we had to, and leaders had to focus on this epidemiological threat, we always thought, we wrote about this in Leading Beyond the Blizzard, that that the long run um, consequences of this are not actually related to a virus. They're related to how our economy responds. They're related to how our societies respond and how people respond. And that set of responses is actually what will be remembered um, 100 years from now. Yeah, you know, while you're talking, Andy, I'm thinking about that uh, phrase we sometimes hear where people say, uh, you know, I don't remember what you said to me, but I remember how it made me feel. Uh, and I wonder uh, if that's a, a bit of our uh, experience with COVID. Uh, you know, it said uh, these uh, these health-related things to us, but the the feelings and what we're experiencing wow. across our world is uh, is so profound and long-lasting. When you when you think about the economic side of things and the different ways that could have gone, how do you reflect back even on what we wrote and what we did or did not anticipate um, from an economic perspective? Well, this is clearly, um, I mean, I, I never thought I could make very many accurate predictions. Uh, this <laughs> is clearly one where we missed it uh, because I really, first, I, and I, I want to say, I think this is incredibly good news that it did not turn out this way, but I really thought most people were underestimating the chance of a massive economic dislocation along the lines of, of one of the great depressions because of the supply chains and other things. I, you know, so people talk about the shape of recoveries, like thinking about the shape of a graph and, and, you know, right. a lot of pandemics are what's called V shaped, which is, there's actually a very quick bounce back. Most natural disasters actually are V shaped. Um, and then you have U-shaped recoveries, and then you have financial crises often lead to what are called L-shaped recoveries, where it drops, and that takes a long time to come back. So we were like, oh, is it going to be a V or a U or an L? And my mm -hmm. money was kind of on the L, honestly. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been that way. Um, I mean, I watched with absolute astonishment as my own little portfolio of retirement money, which is in public equities mostly, you know, dropped dramatically in March and April of last year, and then roared back is now like 40% above what it was last year. Um, so the public equity markets in the U.S. Uh, and around the world, uh, especially driven by really large firms, the very largest firms, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, th those kinds, uh, it like came back amazingly. And a lot of this was because um, of fiscal policy in the, in the U.S. Uh, and around the world. This just incredible opening up the floodgates of uh, money creation, basically, and in injecting more liquidity and money into the, into the markets. Who knows what the long-term consequences of that are, but um, I, I should mention also the other big thing, uh, the thing that they did with all that money they printed was give these incredible PPP loans that that yeah. we didn't really see that coming. Uh, and that was game-changing for so many organizations, including Praxis. <laughs> yeah. um, and and I would, I'm no expert on policy, but seems to me like a really good thing. And so we're in a way better place in certain respects um, at this point, then I think we had any right to hope, honestly, uh, a year ago. And that's such good news because when you have, you know, money is kind of the lifeblood of the economy when it's flowing. 
uh, I don't know, is it the blood or the oxygen? <laughs> anyway, you, you need you need this stuff circulating. And when it's circulating, you have a lot of options that you don't have when everything's frozen, which is what happens in a real recession or depression. So praise, I don't know, if, should I praise God? <laughs> praise the Fed, <laughs> praise some, some bold policymakers. Uh, we're in a better place. But uh, the thing that really grabbed me, and of course, this ends up being the kind of headline of the piece that we wrote and and the talk that I just gave to our summit. Um, uh, several months ago, I read in the Wall Street Journal, it's been widely used, this recovery turns out to be K-shaped. So the thing is that even though it is really good news that our markets have stayed fairly liquid and, and solvent and asset values are up in many categories, that's not true for all by any means for all the boats. <laughs> all mm. the boats are not floating. There are tens of thousands of small businesses that were quite viable before the pandemic. That is, they weren't. I mean, small businesses are always always fragile, but they were they were making money. They were supporting people. They had you know tens or hundreds of people on their payroll, and they're gone. They're mm. gone. And they're never coming back. And, you know, we're recording this in New York and, and you walk down Ninth Avenue right around the corner from us and just doorway after doorway that a year and a half ago had had functioning, viable businesses, a lot of restaurants closed. So the the upper half of the K, you know, the idea of the K is like one half's going up <laughs> and the other half is going down. And I think that's a metaphor, not just for the the reality of different asset classes and different parts of the world. Just today, uh, there's a, a story, I, I read it in, in the Wall Street Journal, I think it's being covered widely, about how the, the global economic fortunes, which to some extent had been converging, we had this rising middle class in many, many economies around the world. Yeah, um, That middle class is, we're, we're seeing in real time in, in the sort of um, middle, um, medium-sized, uh, so-called developing economies, that middle class is getting decimated, while in the U.S. and China, uh, actually the middle class is doing okay. Um, mm. And so K-shaped turns out to be this way to look at almost everything that's happening right now and realize it can feel really good. And and if you're on the upper half of the K, you're like, I survived. I'm, I'm actually okay. I actually have resources. If I'm a homeowner in the United States, my home is now worth maybe 20, 30% more than it was a year and a half ago. That makes me feel like I can do things. But there's another half of the K that, that this has been a life-altering, devastating event, and, and it's not getting better. Yeah. You know, uh, it seems to me one of the largest risks of this time is to we're so self self-referential as people. So we kind of reflect on our own experience and our own portfolio and our own relationships. And we're like, you know, we, we made it and we're doing fine. Yes. Actually, this was a lot better than we thought. Um, yep. Yep. And working from home wasn't so bad. I yeah. got to see my dog and my children. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But uh, obviously that, um, that bottom side of the K, you know, I, I was even thinking as you were talking about small businesses here, you know, as you do walk up and down ninth Avenue, was commenting to a friend the other day how the upper half of the K of those small businesses, those that are basically social institutions, maybe they own their property or right. uh, whatnot, they have all survived. It's the um, it's the ones that were just trying to make it. They were new or they didn't have a breakout product or service or whatever right. that um, are in that kind of middle uh, that uh, yeah. we we lose. You know, so often, however, the 
um, relational fabric of the community is in those, you know, those small corner stores and um, those, those other dynamics. Um, and uh, it's a, it's a real loss and, and uh, you, you hope something comes back um, uh, to, to replace that in some uh, near term time. So um, maybe just a, a, a quick question for you on this front too, as you think about uh, the multifaceted dynamics of this K uh, there's, you know, purely the economic terms that we talked about. What about, you know, we've got a lot of entrepreneurs who, who listen, when you think about organizational culture and teams and even, you know, uh, these working from home dynamics and so on, where do you see K-shaped dynamics inside of, of productivity and possibility and that sort of thing? What should be, we be thinking about there? Yeah, I think we have to actually be very alert to this and, you know, uh, I think it's okay for us to be candid and say we've had some of this in our own work and practice, which on the whole, like we've had, we would, I mean, there's no way to look at our year and not feel just unbelievably rescued by, I mean, the PPP is a small piece of it, but really by just opportunity that we were able to find and our team was able to pivot on all, in all kinds of things. And, uh, what that has been like for people doing the work is, is very sobering. The cost of yeah. really for all workers, um, or for the vast majority, um, even people with, um, honestly, relatively easy jobs that, that allowed us to shelter at home and not put ourselves in a lot of danger daily, the way that people who work with people who care for people or who work with stuff and things out in the world, they had to keep going to work. That was the essential workers, us non-essential types <laughs> who were able to work at home. You would think, oh, well, they, they did okay right there in the upper half of the K. And from an output point of view, that's true. So managers and leaders are looking at their organizations and saying, wow, we got, Hey, we got everything done. We hit our targets, you know, amazing. Yeah. And what that has actually felt like, um, for parents at home, for people who don't have housemates, roommates, or family and are living by themselves is there's an interesting study that, um, uh, our, our friend, uh, and practice mentor community member, James Cham linked to the other day, um, that studied IT workers who can work remotely and they actually, their output didn't change uh, during the work from home season, but it took them 20% longer to, to do, to get the output. So <laughs> um, they're working nights, they're working weekends. They kind of feel like they're working all the time. And that is creating all this uh, deep stress, deep fatigue that often leaders don't see because everybody's trying to show up and do their best, but that's coming, that's creating this like gap between what the output looks like and what it feels like to be doing the work. And if you're not really attentive to that, you are really courting incredible burnout. You are actually unknowingly, you're kind of people are colluding in their own exploitation in a way, like out of a desire to, to pitch in and be part of things and make it work. They're doing their best, but they're actually not living in a way that's that's healthy and sustainable. So one of the tasks now is to, um, I think, to very seriously evaluate, like, what kind of rest do people need? What kind of new rhythms do people need? If we're going to keep having working from home, how do we create more structure so that people really have permission to have the rhythms that commuting and and the, the rhythms of uh, kind of a, the previous work world allowed? Um, we've got to actually build those in because people won't necessarily take it for themselves uh, unless they're given space and given some, some uh, direction by uh, the organizations they work for. Yeah. 
So true. And, you know, I think it strikes me one of the more difficult things for all of us right now is going to be how do we switch modes and how do we know that it's okay to, uh, obviously there's a, you know, switching social modes as far as <clears throat> going out and, and being together and so on. But I think there was this almost social contract last spring, which said everybody's in survival mode. Everybody's available all the time to work on <laughs> making sure we all have jobs and that we all have relevance in this crazy new world with total uncertainty. And, you know, not to suggest that we're in total stability now by any stretch, but uh, there is, I think, the ability for us to say, oh, you know what, like, we we have a little bit better lay of the land. We don't have to operate as if every day our survival is on the line. And that's particularly important and true for, to your point, managers, leaders, CEOs to say, hey, you know what? Let's let's reevaluate all of our, our personal practices and even at an yep. inner level, let's make sure we have enough time and to process some of our uh, anxieties out and, and get comfortable in uh, a, a little bit of a different world now uh, a year later. And um, that's that can I think that can only come from the top. And there, there's also this exploitative risk, right, that certain CEOs look at that productivity and say, well, I'm not going to say anything. If you want to work from home, you keep getting it done. I don't care how you do it. I'm, I'm going to look the other way. Um, and I think that uh, also comes with some, some existential risk. Yeah. Um, you know, just to build on that, uh, like one thing I would say is if you don't already have a Sabbath policy as an organization, that is a, a policy that everyone that ensures that everybody has a full day away from their work. Now's mm. the time to implement it. Yep. <laughs> if you don't have a formal vacation policy, if you're one of these informal, smaller organizations, it's like, oh, you know, take whatever time you need. Now's the time to actually say no. Like your rest and rec recreation is part of being a whole person. And we want whole people working for us, not half people. <laughs> yeah. Um, our our uh, community member, Alpha Demolash um, at uh, Rising Tide Capital, um, uh, their, their whole company started doing meditation. She talked about this just yesterday at our summit. They started doing uh, offering offering meditation for their staff at 7.30, paid time for their staff and the wider community of entrepreneurs they serve um, in English and Spanish because they work in urban centers where people speak both languages. And um, and it's, it's just a guided moment to rest and reflect because their employees and their community were going through so much grief uh, that, that they realized we've got to start every day by just giving people a space to feel what they're feeling, to prepare for the work they have to do that kind of intentionality. I think we're going to need, uh, in an ongoing way. Yeah. You know, I, I would say one of my biggest learnings as a leader over this past year, and I'm still growing in it is just at the, at a, the, the, you just create space <laughs> to, to use your words. And that mm. goes so far because it suggests to everyone in your organization that there is room here for yeah. this conversation it's not something that is privatized or, or even, you know, it's not something that you just individually are going through. Um, it's something we're all going through and we, we recognize that together. So, uh, one, you know, one of the things that's not lost on any of us is the, um, zoomification of everything. I think that's mm. your word. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, you know, there's just been this 
this different way we now interact. And obviously there's, you know, a lot of, again, economic discussion around that. Well, what's going to happen to business travel and is this good? And, you know, should we plan on this forever? And what's the, you know, how do we manage Zoom fatigue and, and a bunch of things like that? But there's something different going on uh, underneath there as far as how we interact as humans and and what our uh, expectations and possibilities and uh, uh, just dialogue looks like. Can you can you talk about how you're processing this shift? Yeah, I'm thinking about it in terms of bandwidth. <laughs> uh, yeah. Two kinds of bandwidth. One is the bandwidth capacity of our our the media that we're using. So. Right now we're doing a, a we're talking uh, on a podcast, right? So that's uh, that's measured measured in a uh, in a kind of high kilobits, low megabits per second of bandwidth is required to get good audio. Um, uh, when you talk on the phone, you're at about fifty kilobits per second. It's less. It's a less high fidelity stream. If you go up to Zoom and you're on Zoom, uh, you you want a headroom of about ten megabits per second. That's a million bits per second of information to have a two way video call. Uh, if you go the other way down to a text message, that's like uh, bits. <laughs> it's a few bits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now we're talking just between Zoom and a text message. There's about a, a thousand times a thousand. Is that a million? <laughs> there's a million fold difference uh, in how much information can cross through that channel. But when you and I are actually together, when we're together in person, and we're absorbing all the information we get from uh, if we're typical uh, sighted and hearing people, our, our sight and hearing, but also other senses we're not really aware of. Also, this neurological process where my my mirror neurons, we call them in, in my mind, my brain physical system, actually detect or, or absorb what you're feeling and experiencing. And I feel it. If you move a limb, if you move your arm, my, the mirror neurons in my brain actually activate the same thing that would move my arm in the same way, even though my <laughs> arm doesn't move. Wow. It's wild, right? Yeah. But this is not just about physical things. It's about emotion. When I sense you're feeling something, I have mirror capacity in me that feels that. And that amount of information, I don't know how to measure it exactly, but I would guess when we're together in person, we're talking gigabits per second. That's a, a thousand times more than the megabits of video. So we are all living through this massive bandwidth compression where we are shrinking down our communication channels to tiny little pipes through which we can fit facts, we can fit information or data narrowly understood. But it's very hard to fit through that pipe meaning. It's very hard to fit emotion. Um, one of the things I talk about in the in the piece that we wrote is um, – is con- why conflict is so hard over media. <laughs> it's because of bandwidth. It's because yeah. the main thing in a conflict, uh, and I'm not talking, when I say conflict, I don't mean like huge arguments. I just mean anytime you kind of run into resistance with each other and something doesn't go quite right. The main thing to resolve a conflict is to get to this question. Do you know what it felt like to be me at the moment that rupture happened or at that moment that thing went wrong? Do you know what it felt like to be me? Because really, most conflict is not so much about the facts of the matter or the decision or the circumstances. It's did you even know? Like it, this is how that felt. It may have seemed like nothing to you, but it felt this way to me. And uh, to to feel that, you almost have to be there. Like to, how would you get that across in a Slack (laughs) or a text (laughs) message? 
And then not just to feel it, but to have you believe that I feel it. That is not just, oh, yes, I really do know, Dave, what it was like when I wrote that thing that you didn't like, which literally happened right overnight, right? I wrote something. You, you, it didn't quite work for you. You were right <laughs> to push back. And, and uh, how do I get you to know that I really heard and I can feel what it's like to be you and I, I'm going to change, but not, I'm just gonna, not going to change the thing. I, I really understand what it felt like to be you. That is so hard to do unless you're in person. So what this all amounts to is if we can't get through conflict together, then I can't trust you. If I can't trust you, I can't create with you because creativity is always a risk. And so the things that get lost through bandwidth compression are trust fundamentally conflict, which is actually where trust, strangely enough, comes from. Trust comes on really ultimately on the other side of conflict of realizing, oh, no, you did see, you did notice, and and we can re- rebuild. And then creativity, um, which is taking a risk together to bring something new into the world. All those um, become incredibly more difficult in a time of bandwidth compression. Yeah, this is uh, such a, a place, I think, for us all who are in organizational leadership positions to really kind of marinate on in the sense that, you know, obviously there's a large conversation happening just on what does corporate culture look like these days? Mm. What conversations can be had in person? Uh, Some organizations saying we don't want to talk about anything controversial. And if you want to do that, don't, don't come here. And so much of this is blended in with this idea of a remote organization and those trends. And, uh, it, you know, to some extent you're like, yes, this, if you put all the the pieces together, there's no way this is going to work. And so, uh, so important for us to find ways to, um, use creativity to, uh, creatively meet. And I think even, you know, if you if you want to think about it purely from a organizational strategy perspective, or if you're in business and economic perspective, we may get that short term productivity out of things where we already know what to do and we're kind of executing the plan. And um, it's like here's the here's the ten tasks in in your you know project management software or whatever. Over the long haul, will the most innovative organizations uh, be able to do that without actually knowing each other and, and meeting each other seems pretty unlikely. Very, very um, and, unlikely uh, to me. And, you know, that's, that's not even to say like, okay, there, maybe there's, maybe there's creative, you know, here's a new tech product that advances culture in some way, but the renewal of culture where it actually requires yes. us to look in the eye of brokenness and yes. say, what is actually happening here and, and have enough trust on very difficult topics to create together. That wow. seems like the next level of, uh, uh, of, of difficulty and opportunity for, um, for us as, uh, as leaders, maybe that, you know, just to to go in in uh, another direction here, one of the things that seems just that you know was in, almost inevitable with this sort of bandwidth compression that you talk about is not only a, a challenge with trust between us as individuals, but a, tr- a challenge with trust um, with larger institutions. And in some ways, that's you know a, a longer term story that was accelerated this last year. Yeah. But when you think about the um, events of the last 12 months. Um, in fact, I think, you know, when we, um, when we wrote that piece last year, we were just a couple months removed from uh, the murder of George Floyd. 
um, which set off a, a number of uh, things in the country, of course, and around the world. How do you um, how do you think about 2020 and our processing of social trust? Yeah, this is to me the third big thing that happened, and this is the kind of thing that, like, this is going to be the the reckoning with how our institutions function and don't, and on whose behalf they function and on whose behalf they don't, or mm. maybe they function in very oppressive ways. Um, mm. uh, uh, this is going to last way beyond the memory of of a particular you know virus, um, because. Um, the truth is many of our institutions have been for a long time, some would say from the very beginning, K-shaped, uh, right? So right. they work really well for part of the population. In fact, they're designed to work work for them. And then they work really poorly uh, for others. And that became visible, I think, through media, um, above all with, with a, a particularly horrifying video, but but not just the single video, Um of of uh, the the, asphyxi- the asphyxiation the murder of, of George Floyd, but but all of these this information streaming in, often I would add through very narrow channels that um, don't always provide a lot of context, don't give you a big picture, but give you a little window into an uh, into moments of extreme trauma, mm-hmm. and extreme violation and violence, and. Uh, what it's led to is, I think, an intensification of a very fundamental question in. American life and the world, I guess, we would like to believe that these institutions are fundamental, are, are, let's say, built on foundations of fairness. They're meant to be fair. They just don't always work that way. So, you know, public education is meant to educate every child. It just doesn't always, it's for some reason, it doesn't work so well for some mm. populations. Uh, police are meant to be, you know, uh, disinterested in the in the right sense, in the old fashioned sense, you know, uh, impartial. Uh, they're they're there to serve and protect, and uh, yeah, they don't always do it right, but but let's work on that. So that would be the attitude. These are fundamentally fair institutions that that need to be improved. But I think in the last year, the 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 truth is, a lot of Americans believe no, they were never they were never fundamentally fair. Uh, there's a lot of evidence they were designed to keep the world K-shaped. And this is on both sides of any political divide you want to talk. I think the people who who invaded the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, what what did they believe? They believed that this thing called democratic elections was actually rigged by elites to benefit one half of the K. They weren't that half. They wanted to take over. And that's a very similar feeling to the person who feels like the police are designed for the other half of the K. They're not for me. Abolish the police. Like Get Mm. get rid of these, uh, replace these institutions with something else. And this is a, um, I mean, this is a generational challenge, um, both to assess what's actually the case about our institutions, what's really true to say, and then what do we do, right? So, yeah. Um, what do we do if if we cannot trust these big structures of our of our common life to protect uh, us and create a kind of an umbrella or a canopy of trust under which we can live creative lives, live whole lives? That is the third big thing. All of these things, you know, were present before the pandemic um, because really natural disasters just intensify stuff that's already there. Um, and yeah. and maybe this one is the biggest one. Um, yeah. yeah, it's certainly the one with the deepest roots in our history. Uh, America was not always K shaped. America, you know, the the bottom county of GDP in uh, the U.S. forty or fifty years ago compared to the top county in GDP. 
if you look at U.S. counties, there was only a gap of, I, I forget the exact amount, but it's like 20 or 30 kind of percentage point gap. Yeah. And now that gap is, is just unspeakably wide, right? So the K-shaped mm-hmm. thing is new. The bandwidth compression is super new. But this question of who were our institutions built for and who do they serve, like that's a minimum 400-year-old question. <laughs> so that's the deepest one. But it's yeah. come to a point this year in a really powerful way. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's so easy to be discouraged uh, in thinking about all of these things. Um, and uh, yet I'm, I am a perennial optimist. And I think about some of the Praxis Fellows. Those are our entrepreneurs that we get to work with. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's so many different ways to rebuild social trust. I think about mm-hmm. Thomas Kim, uh, Everclean, uh, he leads a, a car wash company that's anchored in the Chicago area and just what he's doing with, um, folks who would typically be looking at a minimum wage job that they hold for a few months and really developing them into leaders in their community and in their organization. And, um, the, the renewed trust that comes in small local environments like that. I think about um, Christy Vines, who's the the founder of a group called Ideos, and she's um, worked with the powers that be that decide what um, calendar days we have in the year to create a, a national day of dialogue. I believe it's actually January 6th um, every wow. year that we would stop and, and talk together in a very relational way. We'd get outside wow. of, we're not talking about zoom. We're talking about dinners and, um, getting out of that bandwidth compression and building trust, um, uh, in those settings. And I even think at the, you know, at the international level, as we think about the larger institutional, um, brokenness that we see in the, the legal world, um, Alexander McLean comes to mind, uh, founder CEO of Justice Defenders, who's, you know, working in African prisons to help uh, folks who sometimes have been there on bail for years um, because they don't have legal representation, training them um, along with prison guards to help effectively emancipate these uh, these prisoners from their situation by representing themselves uh, and um, the the new trust that is emerged yes. uh, in the in the relational fabric of of folks that you would think would be kind of diametrically opposed um, in a in a prison setting and just some of the beauty that that can come out of that in some sense I would uh, go go to say you know every redemptive entrepreneur should figure out what social trust they can repair and mm. set about that as a fundamental kind of cultural objective uh, and strategic objective of the organization. Because mm. as we know, every, every place needs that uh, at the yes. end of the day. So yes. one, one, you know, so just as we kind of conclude our conversation here, I'm curious what, as you add these things up, this K-shaped recovery, this, the bandwidth compression, the social trust, when you think about what needs to be reset um, some people call this the great reset, right? Uh, or, or a new canvas or, or whatever you want to choose. What do you, what do you think we should do? And, and what do you look at biblically uh, as a, as a vision for that? Well, I, w- I, w- I won't hide the, the headline. <laughs> it's, it's ultimately forgiveness. Mm. So forgiveness is what the world needs. Um, Mm. But I'm not talking about a sentimental 
forgiveness. I'm talking about a very concrete reset of imbalances that have created alienation (laughs) that are released in such a way that everyone in the system becomes free in a new way. And the biblical picture of this is this crazy idea that (laughs) is laid out in quite a bit of detail in Leviticus 25 called Jubilee. So Jubilee uh, was meant to be the culmination of this set of Sabbath practices that that uh, at the small scale was daily gleaning. That is, every day you'd leave some work undone so that the poor could come along in a field and have the dignity of doing their own work rather than just having handouts. Then a weekly Sabbath where everyone, uh, including animals <laughs> in the community, was given a, a day off uh, from work. And then a sabbatical year every seven years where the whole community would, would not work the land, would just feast and rest and celebrate and worship. And then every 49 years or every 50th year, there was meant to be this thing called Jubilee. And the idea of Jubilee, as I think a lot of people will know, is it was, it was like an economic reset, an institutional reset and a place reset. So, uh, the ancient world was K-shaped, just like ours, <laughs> and it was K-shaped for the same reasons. Basically, disease, famine, and war, uh, all of which still afflict our world. We haven't had famine in a while, but we easily could, um, I- I'm afraid, uh, just as easily as a global pandemic, and it may come in our lifetime. And on the other side of disease, famine, and war, people ended up in debt. Uh, they, they would become desperate, and they wouldn't be able to provide for their families, so they'd go into debt. And then they would lose their land because the only real wealth in the ancient world was tied up in land. So if you couldn't pay a debt, what did your creditor take? They took your land. Every 50 years in Jubilee, the debts were canceled. You could not take out a loan uh, that that lasted longer than the next Jubilee because Hmm. on the next Jubilee, that note was canceled. And that meant that no one could get permanently impoverished because the other half of Jubilee was at the 50-year mark, every family, because land was held in families, every family returned to its part of the land that God had given his people. And this meant that it wasn't just economic, this kind of great reset where no one can end up just accumulating assets multi-generationally, but also institutional. Because, you you know, in a society like that, the, 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 the elite who kind of the elite in a way are the lucky ones, the ones who end up on the winning side of those trades and under duress, right, of disease, famine, and war. They somehow had assets to lend and they got to scoop up the the, the bankruptcy proceedings in a way. Um, uh, everybody had to be reset to this basic level of care for the land with their families. And, and that's the third part. It's like return to a place where it, it's not, it's not you go, go get your, uh, your studio apartment back, <laughs> you get you get this place where you live where a whole with a whole community of people you're related to and that you care for along with your neighbors. It's like this great reset. Now, we don't have any evidence, interestingly, even though it's right there in the law. We don't mm-hmm. there's no sign that Jew, that Israel ever actually did it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because even as you're listening to it, right, you're thinking, 
uh, this cannot possibly work. Like how, you know, how <laughs> every capitalist <laughs> listening to this is like this. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, and actually we had one committee member whose son, he was talking with him about Jubilee. His son said, well, that sounds like communism. <laughs> and it's not communism because it wasn't centralized. The whole point was decentralized. Com- mm. The problem with communism, beautiful vision. Oh, everything in common, except who controls it? A tiny elite control it. Right. Uh, Jubilee was nothing like that. It was all about private, not private property in the modern sense, but families tending their place and that you couldn't permanently displace people from their responsibility and a kind of ownership, a stewardship of resources. So it it's so hard to imagine that in, unless you absolutely, totally worshiped the true God, you would never do it. And the witness of the Bible is as much as Israel was God's chosen people and was meant to worship the true God, they always had these other idols and these other social systems that they were proximate to, that they were kind of interested or wanted to borrow from. And because they had idols, they also never had justice. You know, they mm. never had these resets of Jubilee. But what is Jubilee about? It's about forgiveness. And yeah. Jesus teaches us to pray for this. Matthew 6, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Any person who knew the Hebrew Bible would say, oh, that's saying, take us to that moment of Jubilee. Yeah. So I know we're we're probably That's... taxing our listeners' time, but here's the kind of payoff, right? Yeah. The result of that, of realizing I no longer am crushing, crushed under debt, and or if you were one of the winners, I no longer have to crush people to get what I want. It's it's we're set free from that. Can you imagine if that ever happened? What that would feel like? It would be jubilation, right? Yeah. And the word jubilation, jubilation <laughs> comes from the word jubilee. Jubilation wow. is the result of mercy. Jubilation is the result of forgiveness. Jubilation is the result of restored trust after conflict and after loss. And gosh, isn't that what we need? Now, the thing is, we're going to have a lot of jubilation um, in the next few months here in the US, at least, because people are going to feel like, woo, it's over. We we survived. We made it. Um, On the upper half of the K in particular, there's going to be a lot of euphoria I would just say, beware of jubilation without jubilee. Hmm. Uh, Jubilation without jubilee is actually a really dangerous thing because it allows us to believe that we fixed the the thing Hmm. (laughs) when in fact, we just happened to come out on the right side of this one this time. And and it, it, it almost requires us to close our eyes to the people for whom there is no jubilation and no jubilee. So our task is to make this K-shaped recovery J-shaped, <laughs> uh, jubilee-shaped. We're, obviously, we can't enforce – if Israel didn't manage to do it, I don't know how the United States or the global economy does it, except that Jesus said in Luke 4 in his opening address, his inaugural address, today I tell you this scripture, he's reading Isaiah 61, that, that recapitulates the jubilee in all its fullness. He says, this has been fulfilled. And the work of the people of Jesus is to do what Jesus did, which is to go through the world and everywhere we go, uh, the poor hear good news preached to them, the people who have been crippled both literally and spiritually by by the the suffering of life are healed, are brought back into full relationship with the community, trust is restored, forgiveness happens, like that's our task right now a J-shaped recovery instead of a K-shaped recovery. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm uh, knowing Andy that we had the chance to go to Hamilton together, and we discussed the peak moment in the, the peak moment the play where they say, "Can you imagine?" And there's this pause, and you know, forgiveness is forgiveness. the the choral sung out by the whole cast. And then I believe Angelica Schuyler says later, it's a grace too powerful to name. Yes. And isn't that the grace that we all want to both experience and be a part of in this next season? One, one last uh, thing I'd love you to speak on. So, you know, you've just laid out, I think a powerful Christian vision um, for how we live. Um, There's also a historical reality to this um, risk of jubilation without jubilee. Um, as we think about the next decade or two to come, um, what's uh, take us through, uh, take us through that um, as you, as you've seen kind of the roaring twenties um, from the 20th century, what, what is, what could that look like now? And why is this not just an, I, kind of an idealistic thing, but actually an urgent matter? Urgent. The Roaring Twenties, um, they were jubilant, not just because they, they survived the Spanish flu, uh, but of course the Great War ended. And the Great War in the U.S., we don't get taught it because we weren't as involved in it as we were in World War II, but it was it was in many ways the defining conflict of the 20th century. It's what ended the, the pre-modern order once and for all. And it was a time of unbelievable devastation. And at the end of it, Germany, above all, was blamed. Uh, and Germany was the defeated uh, party, of course. Mm-hmm. At the Treaty of Versailles, many things were done to humiliate the Germans. Um, political things were done, but a, a really uh, significant economic uh, provision was in the Treaty of Versailles. And that was that Germany was to repay to the other powers of Europe, the victorious powers, uh, what was accounted to be the entire cost of the war. Um, I forget that it was denominated in gold marks. I don't remember that number at this moment, but it was $269 billion in today's money. But these economies were much smaller than our economies. That, that's a just ruinous amount of money, yeah. debt, debt. It was literal debt that Germany was forced to accept as part of the terms of surrender. Unpayable. Arguably, 10 years later, roughly, it is what leads directly to the collapse of the German financial system in 1931 mm-hmm. uh, under, under the stress of a collapse of equity markets around the world. And a bunch of things were going on. But that debt was like this massive millstone around the neck of Germany that it could never repay under the terms it was set. And, and so the, there was no choice but to have the economy, the financial system collapse. Well, that led to this domino effect. Within a year, the UK financial system effectively collapsed. The US financial system effectively collapsed. This set off hyperinflation in Germany, which created tremendous social stress. And that hyperinflation is the number one thing that Adolf Hitler's national socialists exploited to gain Mm. power. The 30s followed the 20s fundamentally because there was no jubilee in the 20s. There was a lot of jubilation, but there was no forgiveness. Hmm. There was just like hard, raw, coercive, like payback, you know, that pound of flesh, that that wow. quarter of a trillion dollars. Um, and we are really, uh, I, uh, there's a lot of different levels of vulnerability that we don't have time to go into. And I, I don't have necessarily the expertise to be sure how it's going to play out. But I think we should be very conscious, as great as it may feel (laughs) to be in the Roaring Twenties, the Roaring Twenty Twenties, that if we don't 
pursue Jubilee, we're going to have the same outcome of discovering that, oh my goodness, this this was all built on a K-shaped, uh, submerged K-shaped world order. Um, and, and the 30s could be really tough. Um, at the same time, we... You know, we can't change a lot, but we can change what's around us, and we can we can pursue Jubilee right now. Uh, and maybe our story and our twenties will be different from the nineteen twenties. It could be. Yeah, we certainly can be, be prayerful uh, that it is, and um, put our hands where our hearts are on that. You know, I think one of the things I would just encourage our audience on and our community on is that. You know, we, I think we're naturally inclined as human beings to say, I wonder what the future will hold and how I will adapt Mm. to it. Mm. And this is not the moment for that. This is the moment to say, Mm. we need to make that future so that these, these large things, whatever sphere of influence we're in, uh, whether we're influencing nations or, um, I think Dallas Willard said, whether you want to uh, influence a nation or a petunia, you have to understand it first. Well, I would all, I would add to that uh, whether you yeah. want to influence one, um, you've you've got to you've got to get in the game um, yeah. and uh, and start building. I think you know you close um, uh, your piece on this, uh, saying that this is the moment that redemptive entrepreneurship was made for um, to to bring this taste of jubilee to a K shaped world and. Um, I just say, you know, amen and, uh, and let's go, let's get to it and, um, recognize that, uh, none of this can happen as individuals. We have to do it in community and, um, just circling back to, you know, building trust together, uh, so we can, uh, work through conflict and, and creatively address, uh, some of the great challenges that we are no doubt facing in this, uh, K-shaped world. So thanks as always, Andy, for sharing, um, your, uh, your wisdom and your thoughts and your synthesis of, um, of both, uh, both history and, uh, the present and, uh, where we may be going. It's, um, it's a gift to, uh, to know you and to get to talk with you. Thank you, Dave.